Well, good morning, family. I, uh, our uh, young adults are up at Lake Mead. They, they call it ministry. But uh, they, they did go to the orphanage, so they, there is some ministry there. But they're having a great time, I'm sure, and they're, they're getting closer to the Lord. And it's pretty evident they're gone, right? The service, a lot of empty chairs. We want them back next week, so... Hey, um, on the 8th, we are um, kind of are back, to, back from summer, vacation, and all of that. We're going to do a one, we're having one service so everybody can be together. So those of you at 1045 who don't know half the people at 9 o'clock, you'll maybe get to meet them. And, and even our Spanish uh, service um, folks, they're coming in. Um, they're going to have, most of them will understand some, but we have headsets and we're going to bring them in too. We're going to all be together. One big service. We're going to have barbecue afterward. Just a, a fun time, special things for the kids. We just want to get everybody together uh, for a celebration. And we're going to do that on the 8th. So I hope you plan on, you know, put that on your calendar and I hope you can be with us for that. That's going to be a great time. Um, today, we, this is, Communion Sunday, and every first Sunday of the month, we, um, we have uh, communion. We, we ce- celebrate communion together. And uh, so I want to talk about it, actually, today. And some of you uh, come, and on Communion Sunday, it's you, 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 you enter in, or sometimes you don't because you don't understand what it is. And, and I want to give us a kind of a fuller understanding of it, even if you've been in church for a long time. Well, it's called the, the cup of blessing. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Father, I ask that you would Lord, visit us with uh, understanding and revelation and help us, Lord, as we open your word this morning. May we, Lord, just enter into a closer, more intimate relationship with you through your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, It is a cup of blessings. Communion, when we, we you know, it's called the, you know, the Lord's table, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's a, the, the blessing of the Lord to be able to have communion. And it really is something that I think much of the body of Christ doesn't receive the fullness of what communion can bring to us. It really is a wonderful and, and gift from God. And uh, it's an ordinance that he, he's the one who instituted it. And... Um, Communion started when Jesus um, sat down with the disciples on his last meal, and it was the Passover meal. Now, the, the disciples have had pa- the Passover meal their whole life. In fact, every generation of, uh, of Hebrews from the time of Exodus would have had that and celebrated the Passover meal, at, even in captivity, as much as they could. They were, were always... That it was, God had 
delivered them from Egypt. And their story is, uh, you know, a wonderful story, how God delivered them from being slaves in Egypt. And on the night that he delivered them, um, because of continued resistance by Pharaoh, he, um, he said he was going to break them loose and sending the death angel that would, that, that, uh, that would uh, kill all the um, firstborn. But anyone, and it wasn't just the Hebrews, but anyone could have um, applied the blood of a lamb to their doorpost and the death angel would have passed over. And if they had done that sacrificially or entered into a Hebrew's home and done that, everyone that had the blood applied would be, um, the death angel would pass over and they would be safe. And it was a security that God had given. And then from that time on, every year, there was a celebration of the first of the month of Nisan, the beginning of the year. They would do the Passover. They would celebrate the Passover. And, uh, and the Passover would last. In fact, they would call it the Passover celebration. It was actually the spring feast, uh, the first th- three spring feasts was referred to as the Passover. It, would, it, it had the Passover sacrifice. They had the Passover meal. Then the next day was, or the next seven days, was the feast of unleavened bread. And what they would do is at the Passover meal, they would eat unleavened bread because leaven represented sin. And they would, they would celebrate that for seven days. And then at the end, or sometimes in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first Sunday of after Passover, whatever day that would be. Sometimes that would be five or six days after Passover. Sometimes it would be, you know, two or three days, one or two or three days after. It was just the very first Sunday. Whenever Passover landed, then the first Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. And so from the Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Jesus, when he died, he fulfilled those, those three feasts. When he died on Passover, and then he was buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread during the, that time period. And on that particular year, then Sunday uh, started three days after Passover. So Jesus rose on Sunday. And, uh, and he fulfilled that feast, the, the feast of first fruits. He was the first to rise from the dead. So that, um, so Jesus actually had them come for a Passover meal, and he sat with them. And as they're finishing up the Passover meal, he pulls out some unleavened bread. Now, they, they had unleavened bread, and um, tradition has that, and we don't know how far this went back, but they would take what looked like a, um, like a pillowcase. And they didn't know why they did this, but it looked like a pillowcase that had actually three sections in it. Instead of just one where you put the pillow in, it had three sections. And so they would take the unleavened bread and they put three pieces of unleavened bread, in one in each of those sections. That was called the unity. And even today... In, uh, in Jewish households that celebrate Passover and they have that, they don't know why it's called the unity. But Jesus took the unleavened bread from the middle 
because he is the son of God and uh, he's the second person of the Godhead. He took that unleavened bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And we read this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, um, this story of, of Jesus instituting as Paul writes about it. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, as often as you do it. Now, so we would say that the minimal amount of time is that we do it on Passover. And the early church actually started doing it, um, many, not all of the early church, but much of the early church started doing it um, every Sunday. On Resurrection Day they would do, they would, they would celebrate. And of course, their Sundays were a little bit longer than ours, and uh, they would celebrate all day long pretty much. And they would have a feast, and sometimes they would have... Uh, they would have communion. They would have a feast that went along with it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the the celebration of of um, the communion or the Lord's table um, has two main um, thoughts on it. Say two traditions of the church on how and what is going on at communion, and I think. Th- Clarifying that will help us to get more out of it. The, the, the first one is, is, is oftentimes it's simply called um, a sacrament. Communion is called a sacrament in some tradition. In fact, the tradition I grew up in, which I really didn't understand, um, considered it to be a sacrament. We consider it to be an ordinance that that a sacrament means this, that it's a part of the sacrifice by which we receive grace. That communion is, a, is, is really a sacrifice of the Lord. They, there's oftentimes even believed that the, 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 the service itself is a sacrifice because, and here's, here's how it comes down. There's two kind of theological words, and you can forget about it 10 seconds after I say it, all right? But I'm just going to say it for those who want to remember it and think about it. Um, there's what's called transubstantiation and consubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation means that the bread and the grape juice literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, this is my body, which I give to you, when he took the bread and said, this is my body, and this is the cup of the New Testament of my blood, the view is that it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, literally. And, and, it, trans, and, it, and, and it, it changes when it is blessed by a priest and then it is eaten, and then it transforms. Consubstantiation said the, the bread and the grape juice, while still bread and grape juice, that there is the presence of the Lord 
in, in the fact that God is with us in the celebration. As we worship, God's presence is, you know, specially with us in that time as we worship and we celebrate um, the, the communion or the, the Lord's t- table. So the, it is the, the cup of blessing that is referred to, the body and the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ. And how you see this will make a difference in how you react to it. And I really used to think, well, it's not that big of a deal if somebody does believe it actually changes, it's okay, you know, as long as we have communion and that's not big of a deal. But I really have, as years have gone by, realized that it is a huge, it's more than a distraction. That is actually a false doctrine that I think hurts the understanding of what it actually is and actually hurts the idea of grace and that's, that's more damaging. Now let me tell you why it, is, it does not literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And you might have come from that a tradition, a church tradition that believes that. Um, but let's start off, I'm just gonna give them these to you very rapidly because I really wanna get into what it is and how we can receive the most from it. But I just wanna cover this. First of all is the, the natural understanding. Most, the nat- most natural way to understand someone who picks up something and, and uh, you know, picks up something and says that this is a person's body, is we would say, you mean that this represents a person's body. Like, if I had held up a picture of my family before you and I said, this is my family, you would not assume that that picture was my family. It was a picture of my family. You would assume it represents my family. But you would not assume that it is my family. Right? That would not be your first assumption. If you're watching a play of the Civil War and they say, this is Abraham Lincoln, you, you don't go, wow, that actor turned into Abraham Lincoln. How did he get him here? Um, you know it represents Abraham Lincoln, right? And, uh, or Aslan, the, the lion, is not Jesus, right? He represents, and, and we see that throughout the scripture. Right? When it comes to Jesus, Jesus talked about things that represented him. He said, I am the door. Now, he wasn't really, he didn't have a knob and you don't turn him and open him. He doesn't turn into a door. And when he says, I'm, a do- I'm the door, it's the door represents something. He's the gateway. He's the, the pastor. You have to go through him to get to the Father. He says, I'm the vine. He says, I am, uh, he, he said to us, you are the salt of the earth. Right? You, we're not going to shake you out. That represents something, right? You're the light of the world. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he, he wasn't saying, you know, watch out because the Pharisees are, are going to swell up all at once, you know. They have too much leaven in them. He's talking. Right? This is figurative language. And he used it all the time, right? He used it all the time. He said, we're supposed to eat the word, you know. I don't chew on my Bible, my grandchildren have been known to, but I've never done that. So, so, so the most natural way to understand the words is this is my body. It represents my body. That's the most natural. Then there's this parallelism. This adds to it. See, when he said, this bread is my body, 
Then he says this cup is the new covenant. Now, if you say it literally, that this bread then turns into his body, then you would have to say the cup is literally a covenant. It's not a cup. It's in the same text where he says, this is my body, my, this is the cup of the covenant. No, it's, it, it contains, it contains the, the juice that represents the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Then, then the third one is, Jesus said he was speaking figuratively. Now, he had, in, in uh, John chapter 6, verses 48 through 63, I don't have time to read all that, but um, Jesus was saying things like, he said, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And that's pretty gross. And people were thinking, I mean, literally, he's saying that, and some people were starting to leave. They said, I, I can't take this anymore. I don't care what he does. He can raise people from the dead. He can heal the sick and do all these things. But that's where it ends for me. I, I'm not. And the disciples were concerned as well. And they were grumbling. And in verse 61, it says, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he, ha- he, was, he, where he was before? In other words, listen, you know, what, what will convince you that I am the Son of God? And, and they might be going, well, that you don't want us to eat your fingers, you know, and toes. So please, um, it's the Spirit who gives, listen to what he says. See, because and I really think there's a main point in this that is another teaching altogether. But Jesus asks us to do things sometimes that we don't understand. And it's only by sticking around that you begin to understand. You see? And in this, Jesus is say, was saying to those, he was weeding off the, out the disciples, those who were going to be his inner core. Because he, he knew he wasn't talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But he was going to see who's going to stick around and figure it out, see what's going on. And so he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. See, he clarified. He said, he's saying to them, no, I'm not asking you to eat my physical flesh and drink my blood. I'm talking about spiritual things here. Catch on, folks. You know, when I told Nicodemus to be born again, I wasn't telling him he had to go back in his mother's womb. He was too big. Figure, you know, kind of catch on. I'm speaking spirit here, spiritual here. So, um, and then in John 6, 35, then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He says, so how do you get the bread? Believing. Not eating. Believing. So, and then there's just observation. It has never been shown in any test, and there has been tests done, that the elements of the bread and the, and the grape juice or the wine does not actually, I mean, the elements of the bread and the grape juice does not turn into literal flesh and blood. They've actually done tests. After they've eaten it, it was blessed. It's still digested bread and juice. And then the fifth one, and it's against scripture. Eating humans is not good, according to the Bible. 
God is not advocating, you know, cannibalism. And that's what it would be. And then sixthly, there was no biblical directive ever that a priest was to bless it and then it would turn to that. There's not a scripture in the Bible that tells us to do that. You look in the book of Acts where you see the church in action, you read the epistles of the description of, by the apostles of the, of the church and how it operates, and there's nothing in there about them blessing it so they can turn it into the you know, blood and the, the body and blood of Jesus, literally. And then lastly, when Jesus said, this is my body, he was still standing there, right? He could have given them a piece of his body. He could have stuck his finger and said, here, drink my blood. He didn't. He gave them bread. He give, gave them the juice, and he said, this is my body, and he's standing there, all right? That should be enough, I think, uh, hopefully to convince you that Jesus was not talking about his literal, what literally. Well, what is communion? What is it? Well, first of all, it's a proclamation of the gospel. In John, I mean, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a proclamation in the simple act of communion. When we take communion, and, and communion was taken together. It's not that somebody can't take it on their own individually. I've done that. In fact, in times when I felt like I needed to just get connected with Jesus a little bit more, I, I, I've served myself communion, and, and, uh, or I've had communion served with, with someone else and, and took it and prayed. But it's generally, a, a, it's the body of Christ. It's a church family. We do it together. And it's a it's a nonverbal communication that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. He sacrificed for us. His blood was shed to cleanse us from all our sin, and he rose from the dead. That's why we believe that he's coming back because the message is more than just the gospel, but it's the return too. It's the final. It's the resurrection, see? So he says, we preach this gospel or we claim the Lord's death until he comes, and that we will be doing it, by the way, until he comes. And then he's going to do it with us, the scripture tells us. He tells, the, Jesus said to his disciples, I will not eat again the fruit of the vine unless, until I, till I do it, uh, drink again the fruit of the vine until I drink it again with you in my Father's kingdom. Which probably, and using that term because it is the term that is used there when Jesus says it, that uh, probably some explanation. I've asked people, had people say, you know, why don't we drink actual wine on communion? And maybe they were wanting a larger glass. I don't know what they're, they're hoping for in this. But we don't go down to the local liquor store and grab wine and, and fill it up. We use grape juice. And the reason for that is the actual word wine um, the is actually the word for both grape juice and ferment, non-fermented and fermented grape juice. That, the, the, the original word. I'm not saying our English word. So we have different words. They didn't. They only had one word to, to, to explain it. So when they, the translators chose to use the word wine, it would have been just as accurate for the translators to use the word 
grape juice. But then, of course, if it's fermented, then they, to be accurate, when it is fermented, they would have to say it's fermented, or they would have to kind of assume. You wouldn't know. Context could help you at certain points. For instance, when people were drunk by the fruit of the vine, obviously that was fermented. And when it wasn't, they weren't, then it obviously wasn't fermented. But the fact is, and this is one of the kind of the, the reasons why, why we drink, because it's, it fits. Grape juice is the same thing. It's the fruit of the vine, and it is what probably more likely closer to what Jesus drank than the one we would buy at Costco, you know? Um, simply because of the fermentation process. That um, our wine, current wine, is much more, has much more alcohol content in it than the, the first century wine. Now, people got drunk in the first century too, right? And people would get, could get drunk by it. But the content was much stronger, is much stronger now. In fact, they couldn't even make the wine with the alcohol content that we have, we ha- the, the process that we use um, to make wine. So, um, and then we have first century writing that says wine was always mixed eight part water to one part wine. And that any mixture with more wine content in it was considered strong drink and it was considered both mostly for the, the, the alcoholic. And that it, um, it, is, it was called, in fact, a curse to, for those who would drink that. Now, um, so, and the, there, was a, there was a processing that I don't want to go into, but um, that really took out much of the alcohol in wine. But there was still alcohol if somebody wanted it. I mean, there was a way of getting it, but not at the same level. They had to drink more, actually, for that. So the same wine that we would get from, you know, uh, the local uh, liquor store would be much more, um, a much higher alcohol content than what Jesus was drinking on that first day. So uh, understand, there's a good book by uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, on that. Somebody want to go into more detail in studying it, but Charles Spurgeon wrote a good book about that. Uh, kind of the, 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 how, how that, all, that whole process. I think um, John MacArthur, I don't, I don't recommend most of his books, but he did a good thing on it too. Anyhow, um, point being, um, about 200 years ago, um, we, uh, we, people started using more because of alcoholics and because we were, we're starting to, more and more alcoholics were, um, you know, having to, be, to deal with that. People coming into the church and drinking wine, uh, it wasn't a good thing for an alcoholic to, to, to do, and it was causing problems. And so grape juice became more popular in most of the churches. I'd say most, in half the churches. So, anyhow, um, so the first one is the proclamation of the gospel. The second one is for remembrance. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four says, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance. It's, let the, let the memories of me, he's saying, in all the fullness of my love and power and, you know, flood your 
your soul at the table. When you, when you take communion, remember what Christ did. Not just the sacrifice, that's part of it. That's a very important part. But remember all of his love, all the goodness, all the things that he's done to bring you into a place of relationship with God. And because the, this represents what made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And so we gather. And then feast on Christ by faith. This is uh, John 6, 35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. See, the Lord's Supper is, uh, is feasting on Jesus spiritually by faith for the satisfaction and hunger of our thirsty souls. And uh, so in the Lord's Supper, feed your soul on all that God is for you and nourish your heart with the blessings. See, it's, it's a cup of blessing. And then fourthly, savoring the new covenant. Savoring the new covenant. Everybody say new covenant. What covenant are you in? Do you have a covenant? Yeah, you're, if you don't know it, you're part of the new covenant. There's it, the, the, the scriptures are pretty much divided up between two main covenants. There's, another, there's a couple others, but there's two main covenants. There's, a, there's the, uh, um, the, uh, the law, right? Mo, the covenant of Moses, as he gave the law. And then there's the new covenant, and that's the messianic covenant, the covenant that comes in Christ. And the old covenant was waiting for the new covenant. And when Jesus said, Jesus said, this cup is a cup of the new covenant of my blood. Okay, it's a, it's a new covenant. And in Jeremiah, it says in verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was the Mosaic law. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for after those days, declares the Lord. Here's, three, here's four promises. First, I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. Second, I will be their God and they will be my people. Third, I will be, uh, be there, um, uh, I, and uh, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the, e- from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So even the baby Christian, even the brand new one knows God. It says right from the beginning. And then fourth, I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. Let's just take a look at that real quick. God promises to forgive our sins in the new covenant. Now, in the old covenant, they had animal sacrifice. Malachi talks about how they started to disdain the animal sacrifice. I mean, think about it. You know, over and over, you got you know, another sheep to bleed. I mean, it was gross. And it was gross intentionally. It was, it was to remind us how wicked our sin is, how, how detestable it is to God. And that God made a way for us 
to have our sin, or for them to have their sins for, to cover, not forgiven, but so they could have a relationship with God. And they were despising the very thing that made it possible for them to have a relationship with God because God would not lower his standard. Because he's God, he will not lower his standard. Something had to be done so that they could, we could rise up to God's standard. You know, um, I played basketball for years. I love playing sports, baseball, basketball. I, I played, uh, uh, played basketball until uh, I think in about my mid-40s, fairly regularly, I played as often as, as I could, going on the gym, had some guys that I played with. And um, from, from the very beginning, at, at my prime, I couldn't jump. I could jump about this high. No, I couldn't jump. I had to rely on quick release on these, but couldn't, you know. And, uh, and so... Um, I couldn't dunk, but I had this basketball rim that I could lower, and I could bring it down to five foot, and then I just slap, <laughs> yeah, act like. But I had to lower, you know, I had to lower the bar, the slam. God doesn't lower the bar. You either reach it or you don't. And it's like a 10,000 miles high. And you can jump all you want, you ain't going to get there. But what he did do is he made a way for us because of his sacrifice. See, he, is like, he, puts, jet, he puts jets on us, right? And he shoots us way up and we're able to slam down. We're able to get above the bar because of what he did, not what we have done, see? And, and don't despise what God has done. It's an amazing thing. The sacrifice Jesus has made for us is an amazing thing. And we take communion, it reminds us of that gift that God has given us. And then God... God promises to write the law on our hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit puts the law in our hearts so that we're, con- then, then he's working, not just outward, not just because we could not fulfill that, but the law is in our hearts and the Holy Spirit is directing us and helping us and convicting us of sin. You see? When we come to communion, we're, we, have, we need to be thankful for the times the Holy Spirit has convicted us and we come to God and say, Lord, forgive me and cleanse me. You know that uncomfortableness that the Holy Spirit gives you when you're going the wrong direction and you're making the wrong decision, you're sinning? Have you ever thanked him for that? Have you ever said thank you, Holy Spirit? I mean, sometimes we, you know, we get convicted and we, we ask God to forgive us. But if you had just said, Holy Spirit, thank you for convicting me. Please never stop. I need you. I really need you. Then um, God promises that all the covenant people shall know God. All the covenant people shall know God. See, from the least to the greatest, the, the, the new covenant is everyone knows the Lord. Listen, it's not new for, you know, 
Orange County Christians that say, you know, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. That's always been the case. The only people who are in the kingdom know God. Because it's about knowing God. When you put your faith in Christ, relationship begins with God. And he says, all will know. In other words, there is no resistance to anyone who is in this new covenant knowing God. God is not distant from you. Then lastly, um, God promises that he will be our God and we will be his people. See? That, means, that means all of his infinite wisdom, all of his unlimited power is all you know, all of his works are for us. All of his greatness and beauty comes to us for our enjoyment. He is our satisfying God. He is our satisfaction. And when we drink the cup of the new covenant, we savor this. We thank God for what he's done, that we're his people. And then to close quickly with these last ones, it is a call to love. I said um, early on that the early church used to have love, what they called love feasts. You know, it turned into, it didn't start that way. It started, you know, having communion at service. And then they decided, because they, they did church all day long. So let's just bring our food together and we'll just have a love feast. And Paul writes about this and confronts them because their love feast got crazy. They over, they, it wasn't that they overdid it, they got selfish in it. And you'd have groups of people that'd come together and they'd have these like, you know, seven, eight course meal. They'd have the whole thing, you know. They'd have the fatted calf. And then you'd have little families over here with just a few children maybe and all they're doing is they're trying to break off a little bit of bread that they have because that's all they have. And these people are eating and drinking and Paul, in fact, they started drinking too much. And Paul confronted them. You know, you've made, made this, this is not, Love, you're not acting loving. See, com- communion is a, a gathering to love, to love God, and, and it's a communion of the body of Christ. We get to get, gather together with other people who understand what it is to have Jesus as their Savior and Lord. That's a gift. You're a gift to me. No, you're a gift to the person next to you, and they are a gift to you. When we take communion, we get to take that together. I agree with you. Do you agree with me? Are you, are, do you love Jesus? Did he die for you? Are you clean because of him? Do you celebrate you know, that relationship with Jesus? We get that. We get to do it with one another. It's a love feast. It's a call to love. It's a call to self-examination. Therefore, who, it says in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner. See that word manner, that's key. In not unworthy, but in unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself and is not discerning the Lord's body. And then listen to this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, uh, the, the body eats and drinks 
judgment to himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, this is a misunderstood text and I want to I clarify. When someone comes to the communion table, it is an opportunity to be blessed. When you come to the communion table in faith and worship, when you come to the communion table at that point, God wants to do something in your life. And miracles happen. His presence is there. It doesn't turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus, but his presence is there as we're communing together and we're in one mind and we're celebrating the, the, you know, the Lord's table. And when someone is taking that in an unworthy manner, well, at that point, they are not receiving what could be received if they were, in fact, do, uh, you know, celebrating the Lord in a worthy manner. And when you do it in an unworthy manner, then you, li- you, you don't enjoy the blessing and benefit. So when he says that they're disciplined of the Lord, I believe that that means that God is taking away the blessing that would come to them through the communion celebration. They don't get it. And the result of that is that individuals, in fact, are sick. Some have died even prematurely. It would not have had to happen if, in fact, they were at that point receiving what God wanted to do for them. It isn't that someone took it and they sinned and didn't, they forgot to ask for forgiveness and now God's gonna make them sick and kill them. That's not what's going on here. It is simply that God then is not blessing what would normally be blessed because they're not doing it in a worthy manner. You know? That's why I want, we, we wanna teach our kids to respect the communion table when we take communion, that we respect it. You know, I've, I've stopped a kid, actually more than once, go over to the, try to sneak over to the communion and grab a handful of, uh, you know, who would want to eat those wafers if they didn't have to anyhow, but, you know, I, wanna, you know, I, I don't think God doesn't understand that you're children. But what we want to do is teach our children. In fact, there's a good time to say, parents, how, you know, how old should a child be? They should be old enough to take communion in a proper manner and fully understand what they're doing. That they, they have themselves understood that Jesus has forgiven them of their sin and the sacrifice he made for them. They understand that what communion is, that re- what it represents, the body of Christ and the blood that was shed for them on the cross. Don't let your children do it until they know. In fact, I'm of the opinion that the first time they do that, that ought to be a big deal in your family. It ought to be anticipated. You know, it's not just like all of a sudden, yeah, I think you could do this now. I mean, it, it, it's thought through, um, talked about, and, and assured you even go to our, our children's pastors with your kids and they'll, they'll be happy to talk with them and sit down and tell you, yeah, we think we fully, they fully understand what's going on. And then make it a big deal that we get to take 
the Lord said, you know, we get to take communion together today and joyfully look forward to that moment. This is such a big thing. It isn't a little thing, you know. We're not just trying to, you know, eat something and grab something. There's not enough to fill anybody anyhow, but, you know, we don't, it's not what that is about. And we don't take it that way either. It isn't just an act that we're doing because it's the first Sunday of the month. We do it with, with honor to God. Self-examination. And then lastly, and this is it, it is a fellowship around the foundational truth. It is a fellowship. We are doing this together in fellowship. Koinonia, we are doing this together. We are the body of Christ, and this is what we do. We remember what God did. We celebrate it. We take communion together, and we honor and worship him for what he's done. I'm going to ask you if you would like, um, we're, before, in, in a minute, we're going to take communion for those who want to and don't want to. And say to those of you, you say, I'm not, you know, maybe you're not, you've not been a believer. Maybe you're not ready to take communion for any reason. You don't have to. Just enjoy the, the end of the service as we worship. But I want to I invite uh, you to pray. Those of you, might, maybe you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Christ. Jesus wants to forgive you. And he wants to cleanse you. And he paid a price for you. And he wants you in his family. And you can do that with a simple prayer. Would you pray with me, Father? And just, I'm, I'm going to invite those of you just to whisper this prayer in your heart. Say, God, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. And that he was buried and he conquered death. And I ask you, Jesus, to cleanse my soul from all of my sin. And help me to follow you. I declare you as the Lord of my life. And, uh, and I choose today to put my trust in you as my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And we're going to do this a little different than we normally do. We're going to invite the, our, our usher team. They're going to hand out the bread first. And I'm going to ask you just to hold it. We're going to take some, a moment and, uh, and, and just worship the Lord. And uh, I'm going to invite you just as the Holy Spirit, we're, we're, we're joining into this celebration. And remember what Jesus said. He said on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. So they're going to hand out the bread we're going to be in worship. You can stand, sit, whatever is comfortable for you. And then we'll take the, and eat it together. We'll, we'll do that, okay? So let's, let's let the Lord hear our hearts and our voices this morning.